Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You ever wonder what is mom brain? How is identity affected by being a mom? What kind of support is necessary to keep them healthy? And does guilt tripping really work? This week, we're going to be talking all about motherhood. We're going to explore the biology that comes with being a mom and what is the best way to support their lives to achieve the right balance. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out if those guilt trips actually work. By the way, have you called your mom yet? I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to show you that mothers are not only the foundation of our childhoods, but our entire lives. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. We're big fans of moms, and we want to celebrate them. We're going to get this episode started off with a person who is known in almost every Canadian household. She is Sangeeta Patel, the senior entertainment reporter for Entertainment Tonight Canada and the newest Canadian spokesperson for CoverGirl. She's a mother to two amazing daughters, and for her... It's a daily balance between her career in television and her life as a mom. Tell us about your family. I am blessed with two beautiful girls. One is nine years old and the other one is 12 years old. They keep me on my toes. They're just two amazing girls that are really kind and they're, they're funny. and they, they teach me a great deal. As, as they grow up, I start to learn more about them and learning how to be a parent. And I'm married to my husband for... Whoa, 16 years, I guess, now. We've been together for 22 years, but I have a huge family, and I love my family, and I'm truly blessed, and I look forward to every time I have time with them when I'm not traveling and not working. You're a rather busy person with ET Canada, Home to Win, and CoverGirl. How do you manage to find balance between the two very different worlds of work and home? really difficult when you think about how it all happens together but when we use the word balance it's either taken away from one of your either your your life at home or taken away from your career and that balance is never 50 50 you have to realize at certain points in your life it's going to be 60 percent on your career 40 percent on your family and you should be okay with that but when you have that 40 percent with your family make sure it's full of value to you and you are present and you you put your phone away and be there with your kids and live that moment. So for me, balance changes every week, every day almost, depending if I'm traveling for work, if I'm home with the kids going to their music concert or going to their swimming class, whatever it is. But that balance is just, you got to get used to the idea that it's not going to always be the same and it's going to be different and that's okay. What are the tricks you've learned over the years that have helped you to enjoy life both as a mother and as a Canadian celebrity? There's little tricks that I do at home. One of them is at dinner time, no one's allowed to have their phone. And after we have dinner, we do homework. And that means putting away the phone as well. So I check one more time 
at 8.30 before putting them to bed at 9.30. I tend to fall asleep after 9.32 when I'm with them. The other thing is when I'm traveling, I make sure we take time to be on FaceTime and I get to sing to them, have a chance to chat with them. And my older one now is able to text. So she'll text me anytime she needs to talk to me. She has her iPad. She doesn't have a phone, but she has her iPad and she's able to text with, along with me. So anytime she needs to connect, it's not a problem anymore. Now with my husband, I try to make sure that I spend quality time with him. And that means taking time to go on a date if you can bi-weekly. We're right now trying to do monthly and, and just making sure we're good and, and listening to his stories and his life and my life. And so it's making sure you have those little trigger moments with your family. And with work, I'm starting to learn it's okay to say no once in a while. You don't have to do it all. And sometimes it means taking time for yourself as well. So it's those things that I try to make sure I'm assessing the situation. And one of the things that's really important to me is fitness. So I make sure I go to the gym every day to keep myself healthy. Not every day, but as much as I can every week. The health of mothers throughout life is a huge concern all over the world. How do you stay healthy considering how little time you have for yourself? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And I think women in general struggle with that. We tend to understand that we can do everything and anything. And we can't say no. We're trying to prove ourselves. And we keep that all in. And one day it's going to burst on us. And we need to get that out. Mental health is such a big conversation where you do need to take care of yourself. And it's not just being a mom and having a career. There's also this whole social media aspect and building your brand. And, and it gets into your head sometimes how people are interacting. We used to communicate where we actually went out for dinner and talked on the phone. Who talks on the phone anymore? Um, and now it's become this social world where we're connecting through digital and not seeing each other and not having that connection. And sometimes you tend to see something and judge it and it sometimes gets in your head so mental health is very important to take care of yourself and understanding the power of letting things go and making sure you keep yourself healthy we tend to be so so hard on ourselves we say so much negative things to ourselves that we forget all of the success that is happening around you uh the guilt of missing my child's music concert one night you know i felt so terrible being on the road and I was crying and just feeling so terrible at the same time. And the next day I was there holding my daughter and she was like, it's okay, mom, you know, it wasn't a great concert, but for me it was very difficult. So it's almost letting yourself forgive yourself in certain situations and women need to learn how to do that. And I think that's a very difficult task for us to do. And that support structure, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in the show. The idea of mothers being mothered how did it happen for you? Who was there to mother you while you were being a mother? My mom it was there. My sisters were there. Uh, my mother-in-law was there. They were, when I was having my first child, the attitude for first mothers is like, okay, I read the books. I know what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to raise my child. I want my kids to be sleeping in their cribs eight hours after three months. None of that really happens. Breastfeeding, all of that is not natural. <laughs> and so you have to learn to be able to ask for help. And for me, my mom took care of me while I was taking care of my child. Because you forget, forget about yourself. You're just 24 hours, you're saying, I have to take care of this child. I have to make sure she's okay. And you forget to take care of yourself. So my mom came in, even my mother-in-law came in to make sure everything else was taken care of so I can be a mother. Uh, and I, I will never forget that moment in, in my life. And my sisters were there to keep that, my emotional state in a good place. And so I thank my sisters and my mother and my mother-in-law for 
being there when I was raising my kids. We've all heard of the term mom brain, but what is it? And how does it really affect a woman? Moreover, how long do these changes last? Are they short term or do they forever change a woman's way of thinking? Our next guest has been researching this for some time and her results reveal being a mother truly is a different state of being, especially at the neurological level. Her name is Lisa Galea and she is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. She also is a mother and if you head to her website at the university, you'll learn that her two greatest accomplishments are her adorable adult children to whom she has passed on her love of science and cookie dough. What happens on the physiological level during pregnancy and shortly after birth? There are a number of things. I mean, you, you name it, pretty much the body is hijacked uh, during pregnancy. So there are changes in virtually every system throughout the body. We know there's big changes in lung capacity. So you can imagine that as the fetus is growing inside, the lungs are working overtime. The uh, heart is working overtime. So there's an increase in cardiac input about 50 to 100% more. There's more fluids that have to be pushed through the body. Uh, it's, it turns out it's about four extra liters of fluids that are pushed out throughout the uh, body during pregnancy, which is a lot of extra water. <laughs> Salt balance, immune functioning has to change because the body has to allow for this foreign growth to, to grow, but also protect the mom as well. So there are a host of physiological changes. My favorite one, because I'm a neuroendocrinologist, is that hormones change, and they change very dramatically. Progesterone levels, for example, are about 20 times higher than normal rates. Cortisol, which is the major stress hormone, is, is also higher, about two times normal levels. But estradiol is my very favorite of all of the hormones. I know I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I do. And uh, that increases by up to 100 times normal levels by week 20 of pregnancy. Then by week 30 of pregnancy, it's about 300 times normal levels. And then it can climb up to even upwards of around you know, 500 times to 1,000 times normal levels right just before a woman gives birth. And then what happens is the body has to adjust to the lack of a pregnancy. So birth of the placenta and the baby, all of these hormones come tumbling down. So there's a very dramatic fall. And, and you can imagine that it's not just, uh, you know, you could get very used to these very high levels because it's not just, um, you're not pregnant for just a few days, you're pregnant for months and months at a time. So you have these very high levels of these hormones. Then with the birth of the baby and the placenta, they drop dramatically. And so that sort of withdrawal, if you'd like, of those hormones could have some repercussions. And not just the hormones, of course, but all these other uh, changes. And in fact, doctors will refer to pregnancy as being the first cardiac stress test for, for women because the heart is stressed so much during that pregnancy, pushing out those, that um, extra fluid. In terms of uh, the brain, we also see some big changes. And a lot of the, the, the evidence is in animal studies, rodent species, but there's also a few studies looking at humans as well. In general, it might be opposite to what you might think. Of course, pregnancy is a time and the postpartum is a time to learn new things, right? You have to learn how to interact with your infant, understand infant cries. And so there, there should be a lot of plasticity going on. Depending on what area of the brain you're talking about, we actually see the reverse. We see sort of reductions in, in, in a lot of uh, areas in terms of the volume of that structure. They call it gray matter volume, which is all those cells uh, that are in the region. I studied neurogenesis, which is the uh, birth of new brain cells, specifically in an area called the hippocampus. And what we see during, it starts during pregnancy and is maintained during the whole postpartum period, but we see this really big suppression in neurogenesis in that area throughout the postpartum period. Uh, uh, nobody's 
worked at neurogenesis in humans in terms of pregnancy, but we do know that we see big, dramatic decreases in hippocampal volume, this area that shows neurogenesis uh, during um, pregnancy, that we can still see two months later, two months postpartum, and actually even two years later, you still you see a partial recovery, but not a complete recovery. As far as I've read in the research, it sounds like mothers end up becoming better at certain cognitive tasks, although later down the road. Right. So in terms of cognition and memory, we do know, you know, there's that colloquial term, baby brain. Um, You might have heard of maternal amnesia. It is real. So I don't want to give the impression that it doesn't exist because there's there's some sort of you know popular media articles that say it doesn't exist, but it, it does exist. I mean, most people probably wouldn't notice a lot of the changes that occur. I, I certainly did uh, myself when I was pregnant. I had to park my car each day in a big parking garage, and I could never remember where I parked my car at the end of the day. And that, but that's generally in the third trimester that women experience sort of bigger changes in terms of memory. For most of the process, most of the other kinds of memory, like not spatial memory, you don't see these dramatic changes. And then it does tend to bounce back. Usually, it really depends. Like we know a lot more about rodents, but I would say right around the time of weaning, it might be about six months or so for, in terms of a human equivalent. You got to tell me that memory is actually one of the things that mothers do gain a better sense of because they always seem to remember absolutely everything we did and and they're just <laughs> happy to be able to share it no matter who happens to be there. <laughs> yeah, they remember what we did and didn't do, right? I mean, they've got amazing memory. And yeah, I'd say anecdotally, we all know that. And as, as a mother myself, one of the things that it did start to amaze me after a while was just how good I could keep many things juggling at one time. So, you know, the I, I don't mean to be a little sexist, but it does seem that it's the moms that seem to t- take care of all the appointments, the doctor's appointments, dentist appointments, whether you've had your vaccinations or not, kids get your vaccinations. Um, and and that, that tends to fall to the mother and the family. And so remembering that and doing your full-time job, I, think, I do think that the brains are more efficient at processing information. So, as I said, even in that, that one large study that, where they found a lot of reductions in gray matter volume, it was associated with better, better more, more efficacy or more efficiency in terms of maternal attachments and just learning about the infants themselves. And also, if I may, I, I think that makes sense because in most mammalian species, females don't come with the innate knowledge of how to deal with their offspring. So learning how to take care of a baby and learning how to take care of a child, it takes some trial and error, but we need some plasticity going on in our brains, likely, to set it up for success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Research into the evolution of motherhood in that first year has revealed some rather uncomfortable results. There's the mom brain, as we just discussed, but women also tend to distort and then reconstruct the concept of self. As the child develops, mothers go through a roller coaster of emotions, including sacrifice, compromise, 
and an altered acceptability in public. The internal conflicts can disrupt well-being and for those who are unprepared or unsupported, imbalances can arise. Our next guest has been exploring the need for support of mothers long after a baby has been born. Her name is Sunia Luthar, and she is a foundation professor of psychology at Arizona State University. Her work over the last 30 years has revealed many factors associated with mother's health and what is necessary to ensure every mother is given a chance to live a fulfilled life. We tend to hear women have difficulties with being a mother, not just in the immediate postpartum period, but also throughout a child's growing. What are the main concerns for a mother's well-being? There are a couple of concerns. Moms are typically uh, primary caregivers to their kids and in the U.S. as across many, most parts of the world and across economic settings here. Being a primary caregiver is one part of it, but the other part is the intensity with which mothers feel the pain of their children. So as I'm fond of saying, a mom will feel her child's pain 10 times more intensively than the child feels his or her own pain. So there's a great deal of empathic suffering that can go on because children do experience stresses. That, that is one part of it. The second part is that moms are not used to thinking of themselves as needing replenishment of any kind. The idea is that if you're a mom, you do for your kids, and that's pretty much it. What we are beginning to see more in developmental science is the urgent, critical need for us to be attentive to the replenishment of moms as they dole out this uh, high standards of uh, loving, caring, limit setting, and what have you month after month, year after year, and decade after decade. It really never stops. There have been quite a few studies done showing the positive impacts of emotional support on the brain. How important is the surrounding human environment for a mother to ensure that she continues to be accepted unconditionally and is allowed to share her fears and trepidations throughout a child's growing period. The field of resilience essentially is about looking at how children manage to do well in spite of adversities in their lives. And across the last, I'd say, seven to eight decades of research on this construct, there's one overwhelming message that, uh, that emerges, which is the single most important quote, protective factor is having a good relationship with the primary caregiver, again, that's usually the mom which means that, as you said, that feeling of unconditional acceptance that the child can uh, have and, and keep through the growing years. Well, guess what? The same applies to the, to the moms. Just as kids need unconditional uh, acceptance in order to function well in the face of adversity, so do we, their caregivers, in dealing with all of our own challenges in life, in addition to being, quote, you know, first responders to their distress and challenges. We hear about the idea of pharmaceutical means to be able to help mothers. It almost sounds as if there might be a much better way, which is essentially to have someone mothering the mother. Yes, that's absolutely true. A colleague and I wrote a paper uh, maybe three, four years ago that was called uh, Who Mothers Mommy? And that pretty much encapsulates what you said. Drugs do some good. Good psychotherapy does some good. 
there's a fond of saying, nothing heals like love in real life. And that's the basis uh, for which we uh, developed our own support groups for moms, wherein you have this group of four or five other women who share your developmental stage in life or maybe even the work you do, stage of your, your children, uh, have this group of four or five women who respond to your concerns and your pain with such instinctive, immediate, generous, kind love. And it is that process of being able to experience that from each other, with each other, week after week, um, and regularly in a dependable fashion that is, is critical in the, for the well-being of moms and women generally. But this work is really about moms. Have you found any ways to make this easier in terms of supporting mothers, to mother mothers? Or is this really a case of, to be cliche, a village? Yes, we have found some ways to make it easier. And that is uh, basically putting these connections, the, the groups that we run, on the calendars of these extremely busy women. So the moms with whom we have been running groups are white-collar educated uh, professionals, most of whom are, uh, are working. And in the words of one, one of them a couple of weeks ago, she said, if this weren't in my calendar, I just would never get around to it. So it's a couple of things. It's one, making it happen, uh, getting it on the calendars of all these women, helping them understand that this is not just for your well-being. If you do well, if you feel better, it automatically translates into benefits for how you are as a parent and therefore your child's well-being. And then, of course, the third factor is the availability. You bring together these women on on a video conferencing website and everybody dials in and there it is, the village. So the village is not necessarily supporting the child directly. And this is a beautiful thing. The village is supporting the moms. It's exactly as I said, it's, it's, it's mothering moms. It's like a sisterhood. It's like a, a great deal of dependable, consistent love. For the women who are mothers or intending to be mothers, what should they keep in mind when it comes to their health and well-being throughout a child's growth? First thing to keep in mind is that principle that we started out with. Just as children need unconditional acceptance from us, so do we need exactly the same thing from others in our lives. We are not mechanical. We are, we are human beings. You cannot give out that which you don't have yourself. So the first thing for moms to understand is if you're going to be putting all that, as I said, the wonderful love and limit setting and watchfulness and not to mention scheduling and so on that happens as they get older, as you're putting all that out, you have to get replenished yourself and you have to prioritize that. It is not selfish. It's not about, oh my gosh, I can't do me time. It is essential. You must get this for your own sake and for the sake of your children, your colleagues, your, your, your parents, your friends, everybody. You will be that much happy if you not just give yourself permission, but prioritize making that happen for yourself. So that would be number one. And number two, be proactive about this. If you're going to wait until a time when you're going through hardships and say, yeah, I'll get to it if I'm, or when I have a rough patch, at that time, you don't have the energy or space or time to be forging these connections. So what I would say to moms, especially while in pregnancy or early childhood, early stages, or at any stage, really, 
be proactive, go out and get those connections, forge them, have this, what some women in our groups have called blanket of love available for you, if and when, God forbid, you should need it. And if you don't need it, if life is going on well, it never hurts. It's SAS class time. And today, we're going to look at the science behind one of mom's best known tricks, the guilt trip. We've all experienced it, and for most of us, it works. As to why, well, that's what our guest teacher has been studying. She is Wendy Rote, an assistant professor at the University of South Florida. She's been researching parents' relationships with their teenage kids and loves talking about that maternal tactic we all know, but perhaps don't love. We all know the guilt trip happens. Why are you studying it? Interestingly, guilt is a combination of two of my areas of study. One is moral development and the other is parenting and adolescent development. From a perspective of moral development, a little bit of guilt is actually a good thing. And parents inducing guilt over the right types of issues, particularly moral issues, is considered to be a key part of inductive discipline, which is a good parenting behavior. It helps kids. But from kind of an autonomy development, adolescent development perspective on parenting, Guilt induction is seen as a negative behavior. It's psychologically controlling. It manipulates kids' uh, thoughts and feelings. And so what I'm really interested in is looking at that intersection, trying to figure out how, when, where, for whom is guilt adaptive, and in opposite, when is it maladaptive, and trying to help people do the adaptive parts and not so much the maladaptive ones. That brings up a more important question, which one actually works? Well, I guess it sort of depends on what you mean by by works. Um, Guilt induction over moral issues. And by that, I mean uh, issues that involve harming the welfare or rights or health of others. Pretty adaptive. When you make someone feel bad about their behavior, and that's guilt, that's different from shame, which... In, in my perspective, is feeling bad about yourself as a person. But when you make someone feel just bad about their behavior, about something that they really kind of should, um, in terms of our society, feel bad about doing, it's generally pretty adaptive. They feel like they can fix that because they're still a good person. And they try to make amends. They avoid making those transgressions in the future. On the other hand, if you make kids or really anyone feel bad about something that is kind of central to their identity should be a a personal choice, like what activities they like to do, how they like to dress, who they're friends with. That's really pretty problematic. leads to feeling bad about yourself as a person, and it leads withdrawing or lashing out. It doesn't really help people become better people in any way. Are there cultural differences between different groups when it comes to using guilt to try and get people to change their ways, make amends, atone. There are, though I I have to say, as I've been doing this work on guilt induction, I was surprised at how many times when I went up to kids or parents and said, oh, I'm doing work on guilt induction, they said, oh my gosh, you should study me, you should study my family. And it didn't really (laughs) matter what their race, ethnicity, age, background, everyone said that. From that perspective, there aren't that many differences. But... Thinking more broadly, yes, it does seem like in Asian cultures and more collectivist cultures, they do use guilt a bit more commonly. 
um, especially shaming and social shaming, relational shaming, making people feel bad in comparison to others or in terms of how it's going to negatively affect the group or the family. Does that mean we can actually guilt too much and drive someone into shame so that instead of it's just being their actions, they believe it's themselves? Absolutely. One of the things I actually look at in my research is ways in which parents can make statements that are more or less shaming versus guilting. And you can both do it in terms of trying to induce guilt over inappropriate behaviors, so like those personal choices. You can do it by making the guilt, well, really making it shame, pointing out that you think it's something about the child as a person. That's problematic. So instead of saying, like, you, you didn't do your homework and you're not going to get as good grades if you don't do that, you really should try harder, I know you have it in you, saying something more like, you didn't do your homework, you must not care about your grades, you must not be a very smart individual, or something like that. That's going to be much more problematic. And then finally, if parents make the guilt inappropriately about themselves. So right, same situation. If a parent instead says... You didn't do your homework. I've sacrificed so much for you. It really makes me feel bad when you don't do things I ask you to do. Well, that's not, that may be true, but that's not the immediate person who is harmed by the child not doing their homework. And so that becomes problematic and more shame-inducing for the child. What is the best way to use a guilt trip? And if you are being guilted, what is the best way to deal with it? Or for those of us who are old enough, what happens when someone says to you, what do you want to do with your life? Well, for the moms out there, I would say you don't need to feel terrible about making your child feel guilty in general. But you do need to feel bad if you're doing it over things that don't harm others. So you want to be really specific about the times you use guilt, and also really clear about why it's wrong. So it's not just about making the child uh, feel bad, but it's about helping a child to understand the connection between their behavior and how it hurt other people, and therefore why it's bad. It's called empathy-related guilt, and that's the really productive, adaptive form. In terms of people being guilted, I guess, you know, Try to, try to listen with a grain of salt. Try to say, okay, is this something that they have a right to make me feel bad about or that maybe I should feel a little bad about? And if so, try to, try to remember that they're not saying or hopefully they're not saying you're a bad person because you've done something wrong. We do this all the time with our five-year-old. We say, you're a great person but you made a bad decision, right? And that's the same thing with guilt versus shame. So if someone's telling you something, try not to infer the shame statement if it's not actually being said. Try to take the guilt and get rid of the shame. Try to think, you know what? That wasn't a great decision, but I can do better because I'm a a good person and I can learn from this. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. Now... Go call your mom. She would love to hear from you. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. 
We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Sass.